This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Mostly What God Does, written and narrated by Today Show co-anchor Savannah Guthrie. Mostly What God Does is available now everywhere you get your audiobooks. America is many things to many people. Many things to many people. To mother and her family, it's church on Sunday morning. It's all races, creeds, and religions. Church on Sunday morning. Greetings and welcome to the next episode of White Nation Under God. We are tackling this concept, this ideology that we are labeling white Christian nationalism. We want to talk about what it is, what it looks like, why it's a threat, and what we can do about it. In this episode, I am honored you've got a double dose of wisdom and expertise about white Christian nationalism. I am talking to Dr. Philip Gorski and Dr. Samuel Perry. Welcome, gentlemen, to White Nation Under God. Great to be here with you, Jamar. It's a pleasure. Listen, I'm just glad we were able to get both of you together at the same time. And the reason why we're doing it is because of your latest book, The Flag and the Cross. Full disclosure, y'all. I had the honor of, of writing the foreword to this, and they even y'all were very generous to give me cover credit on here. I appreciate that. Um, I was immediately gripped by the data in this book because in a very concise volume, you give us the a very thorough introduction to not only what white Christian nationalism is, but specifically its threat to democracy. So we're going to start where we always start every episode. Have each of you respond when somebody asks you (laughs) for the millionth time, what is white Christian nationalism? And I say, I ask this of all of our guests because there's always a little bit of different nuance. How do you respond? How do you define or describe white Christian nationalism? Dr. Gorski, would you lead us off? Well, I, I guess the way I usually define it is as a, a deep story, um, by which I mean a mythological version of American history. And it's a pretty simple story, basically like this. America was founded as a Christian nation. It was founded by Orthodox Christians. It's based on biblical principles. Um, it was given, blessed with power and prosperity to carry out a special mission And um, that mission is to spread freedom and civilization and capitalism around the world. But the blessings and the mission are both threatened by the presence of non-whites, non-Christians, non-native-born folks in in America. Um, So it's a it's it's a I say it's a mythological version just because it's it's a half truth. It's not all wrong, but it's definitely not right either. As a historian, I find um, this deep story, as you describe it, very ahistorical or selectively historical, if you want to put it that way. Um, Dr. Perry, I was I was immediately struck by this idea of a deep story, that it's a narrative. Um, and most of the time when I ask people, what is white Christian nationalism? It's, you know, one or two sentence definition that they give. Why did you uh, feel like this this describing it as a story was helpful or what did it add to understanding this concept? Well, I think people want to see themselves as characters in this narrative. And, and so especially white Americans center them, the, themselves in the story as about them, uh, as about, uh, as us, our kind of people. I mean, you can hear this in the language of white Christian nationalism that's usually veiled. It's uh, America as we know it, our way of life is under attack uh, what do you mean? You know what, what you mean is you mean uh, our our place in this narrative, the story that is about us and, and our future together, uh, is being challenged by outsiders, by religious others, by ethno-racial others, by economic others, uh, by national you know outsiders from 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 outside of the immigrants or, or Muslims, and so uh, using the the this metaphor of a of a narrative 
um, or, or, or a deep story. Uh, I think it helps us understand how, how, how vital that kind of self-identification uh, as what it means to be truly American as the, as the, as the, anta- the protagonists in this, in this story and how that feels violated by the, by the enemy. I often use, you know, parts of various definitions, but I think as I talk about white Christian nationalism, y'all have helped me describe it as a story, which I think is, is, is a little more tangible. People can wrap their heads around that a little bit better. We talk about and we describe white Christian nationalism and even describing it as a deep story is, is helpful, but how would you say it shows up? Like, what are some cultural artifacts or symbols like people see that or read that they know this is a sign of white christian nationalism um kind of in everyday life well i i think one way that you that you see it is like symbolism that sort of kind of juxtaposes or puts together the flag and the cross which is where Mm -hmm. we get the title for our book so probably a lot of folks who are listening to this have seen uh, stand for the flag, kneel for the cross, you know, those bumper stickers that uh, became some T-shirts that became so popular, you know, after, um, you know, the, the protests that uh, Colin Kaepernick unleashed um, in the NFL and, you know, the counter protests against them, right? So it's like you know, symbolism that just blends together Christianity and patriotism as if the, you know, and Christianity, Americanism, as if they were really one and the same thing, and of course, as comes out pretty clearly in the, you know, that the, the, the occasion for those protests, it also marks Christianity and Americanness as white, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. is it an accident that the person who is at the center of, of that counter protest is, is, you know, one of the first black quarterbacks in the NFL? I don't think so. Precisely. Would you add anything to that, Dr. Perry? Yeah, I think the, I mean, I think the power of this story is, is, is that for, for such a long time, it has been left unspoken Uh, and it is, and it is, it is buried within the everyday interactions of, uh, uh, of, of people in pews uh, and in the conversations that we have and and the assumptions that are made about uh, who we are as a people. And by we, I mean, say uh, white Christians in a church. Uh, there's a great book um, by Lydia Bean called The Politics of Evangelical Identity. It's an ethnography, and, and she does this great work where she shows that, like, you know, um, most of the time these Christian nationalist messages are not coming from people up front uh, in, the, in the pulpit. They're, they're just taking place in, in the everyday conversations as, as people in the pews imply that what a real Christian is, is somebody who shares our values and our political identity and our ideological identity. And so that, that's what makes it so insidious is, is it's the kind of thing where if you actually have to say it out loud, it, it's, 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 it is almost a, a vulnerability, right? Like you want to keep it hidden. You want to keep it assumed uh, that the real Christians, the real Americans are people who, who share everything about what we share. Oh, that reminds me of when this first started to come on my radar. I didn't have that phraseology yet. But I remember I was walking out of church one Sunday in Jackson, Mississippi. This is an intentionally multiracial church. I was walking out of church, and I can't remember exactly what it was, but there was some local referendum, some local policy initiative. And there was a Republican stance on it and a Democratic stance on it. And somebody had a bumper sticker in support of the Republican stance. And I remember walking by that bumper sticker with this group of friends after church, and I said, you know what? Hundreds of people are going to walk by that bumper sticker and not bat an eye. But if it was in support of the Democratic position, they would have to pull you aside and grab you by the lapels and say, hey, brother, let me tell you about the gospel. Because clearly, you don't understand Christianity if you're supporting this other side of it. Um, so that was just this, this like everyday, subtle, implicit way of saying who's in, who's out, who's us, who's them, what do we stand for, and what are they about? Now, Jamar, I think I you're was, forgetting the 11th and 12th commandments, which are exactly. thou shalt not wear a mask and thou shalt, thou shalt open carry, right? That's what I mean, you know, it's like these but, things that have nothing to do with the gospel whatsoever are, of course, you know, founded on biblical principles of some kind or precisely. other. Precisely. And, oh, man, you're making, you're just jogging my memory. So, number one, there was a white deacon 
in our church and his son who were in the military. I don't know how this came about. I want to say they volunteered to do it. They started uh, acting as security for the church. Nothing specific had happened, but they started acting as security for the church with open carry pistols uh, on their at church on Sunday morning. I just, again, I didn't have this language or this framework, but I'm like, I mean, I get the need for safety, but this, this feels icky. And then secondly, um, <laughs> when you were talking about thou shalt not wear a mask, our church, when I moved back to the Delta, we actually had a church split over whether or not to wear masks. And it, it, it was the seed that ultimately led to us dissolving the congregation. Um, but it was, it was that like, Somebody said, and she was the wife of a physician, <laughs> she said, you can wear a mask if you want, but I shouldn't be forced to wear a mask. So <laughs> there's a ton to unpack here, um, especially in its political dimensions. But I want to get to know you both a little bit better. Um, when I was doing my dissertation, somebody told me all scholarship is biographical. Uh, in other words, what we study, it typically has some intersection in our personal lives. And I'm wondering... What put white Christian nationalism on each of your radars as a subject of study, something that you thought was important enough to devote so much time and attention to? Uh, Dr. Perry, how did how did you get in on this? Yeah, so I mean, I, I, I absolutely uh, affirm research being uh, <laughs> me search and, and autobiographical in a in a in a really uh, a profound way. So uh, raised in an evangelical family, graduated from an evangelical seminary, uh, was raised in an interracial family. Uh, and so those three things of, uh, of race and religion uh, and in some ways politics have always uh, found an intersection. They were just dinner table conversation for us growing up around the house. Um, and so I've always been fascinated. Actually, it's one of the things that led me to become a sociologist. I've always been fascinated with uh, American Christianity and uh, the various cultural accretions uh, that that uh, pile upon it and shape it and 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 change it and and uh, t- to where uh, things like region and race and and politics uh, are become not only the filters but maybe even the drivers through which we interpret our own theological experiences and traditions. And so I think uh, it was a few years ago that we stumbled upon you know Christian nationalism as this thing that we we started to notice in the late you know maybe uh, you know 2014 2015. Andrew Whitehead and I were writing about this. Uh, then also Phil Gorski's work. Uh, we had read his historical work in American Covenant, and it was just like, yes, this is exactly what we're looking at. And, and so uh, this has been, I think, over the last few years, tied together a lot of the things that have been a, a, a part of my own life's journey of race, religion, and, and uh, the American experience. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Dr. Gorski, how did this get on your radar? Definitely is a biographical piece uh, for me, too. So I Spent my adolescence, middle school through high school graduation, Wheaton, Illinois, like a quarter mile away from Wheaton College and and, and the Billy Graham Center. There are evangelicals and Pentecostals, you know, and all branches of my family. Um, you know, I we mostly attended a kind of a mainstream Lutheran church, but you know, would occasionally go to a Calvary Temple as well, and. Uh, I knew plenty of people who were uh, members of Wheaton College Church or uh, one of the local Assembly of God's uh, congregations. And, you know, it was just sort of always, always there, always, always around me. And, you know, I guess part of what happened, too, was just, you know, seeing, you know, certain things that just seemed common sense to me when I was when I was younger, you know, especially then spending some time living outside the United States. And, you know, my wife is German and she would be like scratching her head, like, well, you know, what's Christian about that? Or, you know, why do Americans believe this? And so, you know, that just gave me a certain kind of uh, cultural distance and turned some things that had just, you know, surfaced some things um, that I hadn't really thought very hard about. So I guess that's kind of how I backed into the subject biographically. Well, I'm glad that two of you linked up and wrote this book together in it you introduce the interaction of three different concepts, freedom, order, and violence. And you sort of frame, uh, help us understand how, how, how this ideology is, is framed around these components. Um, can you talk about what white Christian nationalists mean 
by freedom, order, and violence. Dr. Perry, we'll start with you. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think this emerges out of uh, white Christian Americans' uh, understanding of themselves at the center of this story. Uh, and and their their own part in this story is as valuing. They really do believe this. I mean, valuing liberty, valuing religious liberty. That is the religious freedom language is something that is a, a core part of this identity. Uh, but it's a very particular kind of religious liberty. You know, it, it's uh, as we have seen recently in Supreme Court cases and arguments and, and about what religious liberty means. It doesn't mean religious liberty in an abstract sense or in, in, a, in the sense that everybody's freedom is protected. It means uh freedom in a, in a Massachusetts Bay Colony kind of sense. It is, it, is, it is our liberty to arrange a society as we believe God wants us to arrange it. And those who are not a part of that can either leave uh, or they can change uh, or they can suffer uh, the violence. And so like the, the, the idea of freedom is, is white Christian American men primarily have the freedom. They, they are, they're at the center of the story and theirs uh, is the nation. It, it, it rightfully belongs to them. It was founded by people like them and, and it is made for people like them. And they have the freedom to establish order. Uh, that means the, the society as they, as they believe it ought to, to, to work and run, namely privileging uh, their own values and, and, and preferences. Uh, and those who violate that, either uh, insiders who, who, who dissent or, or outsiders who have come to change uh, the hierarchy uh, are met with violence, and it's justified violence. That is, uh, I think, a, a common thing. Like we we demonstrate this in chapter three of the book that uh, white Americans who subscribe to Christian nationalism are very supportive uh, of authoritarian means of social control. Uh, that the police are justified in using any means necessary uh, to control problem populations. That the the biggest problem with the death penalty is we don't use it often enough, and that the, the best way to stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. Why? Well, and, and actually, we and we we found this recently. This is subsequently to the book we found in recent data. Um, we asked Americans. We just gave them a list of the of the Bill of Rights, and we said, "What's the most important right?" Um, and uh, you would think that white Americans who subscribe to Christian nationalism would say, "Well, freedom of religion, right?" It's actually uh, the right to bear arms. It's the Second Amendment wow. uh, because wow. that is that and that goes consistent. That is con- completely consistent with how we understand this. It is, it is the freedom to exercise violence, to be able to control uh, your own destiny in this story. And I think freedom, order and violence is, is what we call the holy trinity uh, of white Christian nationalism for that very reason. It quite differs from the biblical idea of the trinity, but uh, is. Yeah. I think explanatory. Uh, Dr. Gorski, would you have anything to add to that idea of freedom, order, and violence in white Christian nationalism? Well, I'll, I'll say this. I, I think that I'm, this holy trinity and deep story helps you to explain a lot of things about our contemporary politics. I'll, I'll give you two examples. One is the reaction to the 1619 project. Why was there such a backlash against that, Right. And there's there's sort of two reasons for it. It's like, first of all, it says, is it just white people who built this country? And the other thing about it is, you know, white Christian nationalism kind of grandfathers every white person in is somehow being there with the founders. You know, so the idea that, uh, you know, the descendants of generational African-Americans were there before a lot of white Americans, you know, in that sense are sort of closer to the to the roots of the country, that's just deeply offensive because you, you want to be grandfathered in. You want to be at the at the center of the center of the story. Um, other the other illustration we use in the book is we just sort of look at okay, we we, we line up kind of three events of the last uh, 15 years or so, right? Which is the Tea Party movement that emerges after Barack Obama is elected, uh, the Black Lives Matter protests the a failed coup attempt on January 6th. So just sort of think about how conservative white Christians react to this. So the, you know, the Tea Party, well, that's all about liberty, right? Freedom. Um, I mean, you know, we know it's also about a black man in the White House, but, you know, that's not the stated reason for the backlash. Then Black Lives Matter comes along. Well, is that about freedom? Uh, no. I mean, that's all about disorder. That's about threats to property. That's about threats to hierarchy. Uh, so, of course, you know, you've got to have righteous violence. You know, you if, if you can't get in the National Guard, if the police won't do their job, we'll send in some white vigilantes like Kyle Rittenhouse, you know, who gets celebrated. I mean, last I heard, he's 
signed up. He's like some lobbyist or spokesperson now for some gun rights group. You know, he's like a, he's like a hero. Um, and then uh, look at the Capitol insurrection. What was that about? Was that violence? No, definitely not. That was peaceful, patriotic Americans standing up, standing up for their freedom. So, you know, it's freedom for me, but not for the, you know, it's violence for me against you all in the name of an order that puts me on the top. That's how it works. Again, this concept has such explanatory power. This is one of the reasons I gravitated towards studying it is we see these things and there's a dissonance. Like, well, if you're Christian, why would you support those kinds of things? But when you sort of unpack this concept, this ideology, this deep story of white Christian nationalism, it begins to have its own internal logic. We may disagree with it. <laughs> I hope we do. But you see how it actually makes sense internally. Um, one of the things that I've noticed is whenever I sort of talk about white Christian nationalism, there's always someone who chimes in and says, well, that's not actual Christianity. Um, <laughs> we, we actually addressed that in some other episodes. What the flip side of that is there's a less focus on the part of folks like that on the last part, the nationalism part. Um, which gets at the threat to democracy. And that's one of the things that I think we really need to hone in on is how white Christian nationalism is actually undermining the peaceful transfer of power in our nation. So, Dr. Perry, how would you explain to someone that white Christian nationalism isn't just sort of a, you know, perversion of biblical Christianity or just religious in nature? but it is a threat actually to democracy itself in our country. Yeah, it's a threat in several different ways. Um, of course, the underlying ideology behind it, and this, this political theology of, of, of white Christian nationalism uh, is incompatible with the idea that we are all equal citizens uh, and that we all deserve uh, equal access, equal protection under the law, that we all uh, uh, should, should be able to uh, be represented in our own uh, views we find, and we talk about this in the book, but we've subsequently found it else, elsewhere in other studies mm-hmm. that uh, Christian nationalist ideology is is uh, quite strongly associated with believing that we already make it too easy to vote, uh, that they would support hypothetical civics tests in order to vote. I mean, real Jim Crow stuff, like they would revoke uh, criminal uh, criminal offenders for life, certain criminal offenders, um, uh, that voter suppression is a lie, that voter fraud is rampant, all of these things that we would, we would think. And, and, and that is predictable, right? Like it's it's the idea that only a worthy few should be able to access uh, the vote, to be to be able to pull the levers of power. Uh, we found in a subsequent survey, I think last year in the summer, where we just asked Americans, is 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 voting a right or is it a privilege? Uh, and thankfully, most Americans identify correctly voting as a right. Uh, but the more you affirm Christian nationalism, the more you believe that voting is not a right, but a privilege. In other words, it's, it is not something that shall not be infringed, but it is something that we can take away or we. Uh, so that ideology is is is, is corrosive to uh, the idea that we we live in a, a society where people have a voice and they have the, uh, the right to have that protected. But we also find, though, I think there's another factor to this, and that is Christian nationalism is is fundamentally about us versus them, and and we are the ones uh, who are uh, the righteous, the worthy, uh, and 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 to to cooperate with them is 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 an unacceptable compromise. God is on our side; they are on the side of Satan and his uh, his minions. And so, uh, how can you how can you participate democratically with with a group? How can you compromise? How can you work and and, and do the things that all uh, democracies or constitutional republics require us to do? Which is which is try to make the best out of conflicting interests. Uh, we we found that this is data that we just collected a, a couple of months ago, but we found that you know of course Christian nationalism. Uh, seems to lead Americans to to believe that, you know, uh, it is it is better that it is it is not better that we say find a way to overcome our differences to solve common problems, but it's more important that we overcome our opponents to defeat uh, to defeat them. And, and again, uh, that seems like a fundamentally anti-democratic uh, line of thinking. Uh, if we're actually going to cooperate in any way, it's us versus them. It's never us together. And in a sort of by any means necessary kind of um, real politic embedded within that, I would say. I keep telling people, you know, it, this feels like 
the civil rights movement of our day. And one of the, the pieces that I point to is that literally voting rights are under attack. What, what, what people were marching for and boycotting for 50, 60 years ago is back on the table as questionable. And I really appreciate in, in, uh, the chapter you reference, you, you quote, uh, Mike Huckabee saying, I don't want everyone to vote. I want the people who will vote for me and the people who understand the constitution. And it's not great that everybody has access to the vote. Like, and he's a, he's a minister, you know, it's, uh, so, so there is a threat to democracy. It took on acute form on January 6th. 2021. Dr. Gorski, in your view, what did that attempted insurrection represent for white Christian nationalism? Was it a turning point in some sense? Did it reveal something new? What does it symbolize or indicate for us on a broader level beyond that single day? Well, it's interesting, you know, that that the insurrection happened while uh, while Sam and I were finishing up the book, actually. I mean, we opened the book with the discussion of it, but uh, you know, it was a moment where we really felt sadly vindicated in, in our analysis because so we looked out at the symbolism there out on the Capitol and it looked like a sort of a weird jumble. You know, you had the wooden cross and the wooden gallows. You had the Confederate flags and the American flags. You had the Jesus saves banners and you had the sort of neo-Nazi regalia and you're thinking, you know, what does any of this have to do with each other? Right. But, you know, you could kind of see it, the whiteness, the Christianity, the nationalism were, were definitely all, all on, all on display. And I mean, I think it was um, the, the sort of upside of it is that I think it, it made many more Americans aware of it, both people inside the church and people outside the church more aware of it. Uh, I think a lot of secular progressives uh, were just completely unaware of this. It's not part of their milieu. It's not part of their subculture. Um, the opposite was the case, I think, with a lot of conservative white Christians. It's just like so much part of the water they swim in and the air that they breathe that was basically invisible. Um, and so I think that's been that's been the positive side of it. Of course, you know, the negative side of it is that um, it is increasingly becoming uh, a label that some people are willing to embrace, and it is becoming a strategy that some politicians are willing to use. Um, so, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene and a bunch of others have, like, openly embraced, uh, embraced the label, and, you know, you've got... Uh, you know, some far right, you know, uh, basically white supremacist types who were now kind of using it as a, as a fig leaf, you know, because after all, now even today, it's, uh, it's sort of easier and polite company to say, um, I'm defending Christian civilization than it is to say, I'm defending the white race. Though oftentimes for these folks, there's not much daylight between those two things. Ooh, that's, that's like a, gut punch of truth, you know, you could almost interchange I'm defending white America as I'm defending Christian America in the sort of sociological and cultural sense. Um, so as we're looking at the landscape, and as I listen to this rhetoric, um, it does strike me that folks look at the Constitution almost as a divinely inspired document. And they'll speak of it in sort of this, almost the same reverent tones that they would the Bible. And I think even what theologians would call a hermeneutic, um, just your sort of interpretive principle, they almost apply the same kind of hermeneutic to the Constitution as they do the Bible. This, I think they call it originalist interpretation. You know, you can't mess with what the, the founders said or the original document which is mind-boggling as somebody who went to seminary and got a history degree. Um, Dr. Craig, I wonder if you could speak to that, what, how white Christian nationalists are viewing the Constitution. Yeah, it's, I, I think it's, an, it's really important. And, and I think I, I like that you paralleled it with the Bible because I think the, um, 
it is not just the Bible or the text per se or the Constitution per se that they they, but it is their interpretation of that of of those documents, both those documents, right? Like so, there are certain parts of the Bible that they uh, minimize or or obscure or or sweep to the side about justice, about uh, about you know all being one under Christ and and uh, and and that kind of you know generosity and tolerance and basically everything about Jesus's life that is not selling money changers from the from the. So the same thing with the Constitution, right? Like the, the the parts of the Constitution that they idealize and venerate would be things like gun rights, and they say this is sacred, this is inviolable, these are rights, these are inalienable. You can't change them, you can't take them away. And a certain reading of the First Amendment, that uh, especially the the free exercise clause uh, about you know my 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 religious liberty shall not be uh, infringed. Um, and they minimize other parts, uh, like about you know uh, parts about no religious tests for for public office, or 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 that uh, that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. Or it is an interpretation of that because hey, when they said Congress shall make no law, you know, respecting, they assumed it was all Christians. They assumed it was all Christianity, and all these states had you know state religions. And so uh, you know there was it was about keeping the state out of religion. It wasn't about keeping our Christianity from influencing all of these kinds of uh, state things. And so we definitely find. The more Americans subscribe to Christian nationalism, the more they venerate the Constitution. But it's important to nuance that and say that you know it's it is it is a, it is a particular reading because I, I'm not ready to give up the Constitution to them. I'm you know I'm not ready to say like hey let's you know you guys got the Constitution we'll go something else. Like no, actually we we feel like religious liberty is constitutional and and uh, and equality is constitutional with the amendments. You know like that uh, with important amendments, uh, it is it is we have moved towards. Uh, a society uh, that we would like to to see uh, actualized, uh, and uh, and so um, yeah, I think venerating the originalist interpretation often just means uh, as as we understand that interpretation to be. And of course, we've got Supreme Court justices who are subscribing to that interpretation, which is leading to some uh, very some decisions that are making a lot of people very uncomfortable. Let's put it that way. Um, as right. a, as a well, and I think that's that's a great point, Jamar. Is 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 uh, is you know, the 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 strategy of all of this belies the 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 shrinking numbers of the group, right? Like, and so if 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 white Christian America understands that it's demographically it's on the decline, which which indicators suggest that it is, it, it is they're losing the population, and even and even people who subscribe to Christian nationalist ideology might be shrinking to some degree, but because they have maneuvered successfully in order to get certain actors in positions of power, uh, their influence can reach far beyond the actual numbers. And this is actually one of those anti-democratic things where it's like you can actually subvert the will of the majority uh, for a long, long time, as long as you have lifelong appointments, and as long as you have laws in place that will give you your, your group an advantage for from here on out. I would just piggyback on, piggyback on that real quickly and just say, you know, some, some people look at this and they say, wow, um, one party minority rule for a generation or two, that would just be this incredible break with American history. Like, have you ever studied the Jim Crow South? Exactly. Right? I mean, and I think that's that's what we're that's what we're potentially confronting and you know, hopefully something that we can head off. But we shouldn't see this as something that's on that's like, you know, some break with American history is the return of a of a dark chapter in American history is what it potentially is. I really appreciate you saying that um, because in Mississippi, where I went to the school at the University of Mississippi for a long, long time, there was one party comprised of white people that was in power, which is why in 1964 they had to form the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party to challenge the all-white delegation from Mississippi and try to break this very long tradition of one small group of people uh, dictating standards and policies for an entire and much more diverse group of people. We've been talking about uh, white Christian nationalists, and one of the points that we're making in this series, it's not a binary, you are or you aren't. Rather, it's you know a sort of whole spectrum of beliefs. And I'm wondering, from a data science perspective, what were the kind of questions or indicators of white Christian nationalism? Uh, as we speak about, you know, those who subscribe more strongly to it, what were some indicators that one ascribes to white Christian nas nationalism, Dr. Perry? 
Yeah. So I think um, we have we have I mean, the, the measures have, uh, have adjusted over time as we've sought to use better ones. I think originally when we first started to try to get our minds around what is this thing, uh, we were using data, earlier data that somebody had collected in the mid 2000s that asked a series of questions that we felt like were fairly effective uh, things about uh, how, how much Americans agreed with statements like uh, the federal government should declare the United States a Christian nation. That's a pretty explicit one, right? I would say somebody who strongly is, agrees with that, you know, is, is, is pretty on board with the idea of Christian nationalism. Other ideas uh, get more at the deep story, like the success of the United States as part of God's plan. Um, we have since introduced new questions to ask, say, about like the, how, whether they believe the, the Constitution or the Declaration were divinely inspired. Um, we've asked questions about whether or not uh, Americans uh, affirm the separation of church and state. In other words, they, they don't want a separation of church and state. They want those two things to be coterminous or together uh, as much as possible. So I think that the degree to which certain Americans would affirm explicit indicators that America should always be this Christian nation, we should formally declare ourselves that. It's not just about Christian values, but it's about formalizing this relationship, making it, making it such but also the degree to which Americans, like Phil was talking about, the degree to which they buy into this deep story, this mythological narrative that America has been and should always be um, in this special relationship with God, that he, he, America is where God pays attention and, uh, and, we, uh, you know, and he has our best interests in mind versus every other nation. Um, I think that, is, uh, uh, that combination of beliefs helps us understand. And like you said, I mean, I, I appreciate that you said that. I, we until recently, when we've actually started asking about whether Americans actually identify as Christian nationalists, uh, we have only asked them how much they agree with certain ideas. And so it, it is on a spectrum of, you know, rejecting it somewhere in the middle and wholeheartedly like true believers embracing it. That's really helpful. Uh, Dr. Gorski, I'm going to hit you with sort of a current events question. Um, so this, as we record this, Elon Musk has just taken over Twitter. And the topic of conversation uh, that depending on what end of the spectrum you're on, you're either really excited about or you're absolutely dreading is the topic of free speech. We talked about the white Christian nationalism version of freedom of religion and how they interpret that. Can you speak to how someone who strongly adheres to white Christian nationalism is understanding the concept of free speech? Well, I mean, I think... What it really boils down to at this point is I should be free to use degrading language about people of other races, religions, genders, and I shouldn't face any consequences for that. I mean, not only should I not face any legal consequences for that, but I shouldn't face any social consequences for that. You know, everybody has to respect my right to, to say really ugly things and really disrespectful things about other people, just like in the in the good old days. I, I think that really is what, for a lot of folks, what it means. Absolutely. Dr. Perry, would you add anything to that? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's one of those things we also find, I'll just add, add an addendum to that. When we asked Americans about their views on, like, what are the most important rights, uh, uh, it, it was telling that uh, as somebody abs- as white Americans in particular subscribe to Christian nationalism, the more they, the more important they see gun rights, the more important they see no surprise states rights, uh, the more important they see say religious liberty. Uh, but two things went down noticeably, and that was free speech and freedom of the press, uh, because it is it is uh, they it is again this kind of idea that what is most important is it most important that that. Uh, people without a voice be able to speak or the press be able to kind of tell the truth? No, it's more important for us to be able to defend our own kind of position. Uh, and so when they say free speech, they mean free, well, as exactly like Phil said, free speech to be able to say ugly things, uh, to uh, speak in discriminatory language against uh, outgroups, potentially threatening violence without consequence. But they don't mean, they do not mean uh, uh, people being able to say, talk about um you know, uh, political or religious views that they disagree with. That is not on offer. It's not about uh, so freedom, you know, free speech to uh, give, a, give a talk about some kind of opposing political view. It means we feel like we're the minority and we need to be protected from uh, cancel culture or whatever they would call it. I mean, it seems like a contradiction, right? You know, so like, how can you be against free speech, but also against cancel culture? Well, Freedom for me, but not for thee, right? That's one of these central principles of 
of, uh, of, of this dogma, you know, or uh, if I could just sort of riff a little bit on Stephen Colbert, you remember his book, I'm America and so can you. I am American. No, you can't. I mean, that's uh, that's the message. Very good. Our, our One of our philosophers of the day, absolutely, Stephen Colbert. Um, it's this idea of freedom from consequences, you know, uh, to say the most bellicose things and, and say, hey, I'm I'm free to say it. You can't cancel me or whatever it might be. And it's got a lot of folks like black folks and women and uh, queer and trans people very, very nervous that, you know, one of our largest social media platforms, that seems to be the direction is trending. And uh, your explanation helps us understand why that would be of concern. Going back a little bit to the threat to democracy in the political sphere, I found it really interesting. You, you have a pretty lengthy discussion in the book, not just about republicanism or, or democratic um, parties, but about the idea of libertarianism. Um, Dr. Perry, could you unpack what libertarianism is as a sort of political philosophy and particularly why um people who gravitate toward white Christian nationalism would gravitate toward ideas of libertarianism. Right. I think this goes along with the Holy Trinity idea of, of freedom, order, and violence. It is, it is the, the epitome of this, this uh, liberty in every, in every sense, uh, liberty and, and not moral liberty. I mean, they're very much into the idea of a, of a social order, a moral order that fits with their own traditions and customs. But the idea of, of, of complete economic freedom, uh, over and against what they perceive to be the ultimate enemy, which is leftism or socialism, um, we found in the in the in the book that uh, that uh, Christian nationalism, yes, they are opposed to atheists and Muslims because those are religious outgroups. But uh, but who they really hate are socialists um, because socialist represents everything. It's a catch-all term. It's it's one of these like it's a, it's a dog whistle, right? It means uh, it means cultural atheism. It means uh, failed economic policies. It also means, you know, radical minority identity politics. Uh, so much that Dinesh D'Souza, you know, had to coin a term. He called it identity socialism to, to say that it's it's socialism, but Black Lives Matter is is socialism, but it's a way that's identity socialism. It's 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 a, it's a different kind of like social control that you know to try to associate Black Lives Matter and Antifa with these uh, with with socialism, which is this demonized concept. Compare that to. How the, the kind of world that white Christian nationalists would like to see where they have absolute freedom to uh, say ugly things, uh, to, to spread misinformation, which is another part of the equation, is like the freedom to be able to sow uh, falsehoods about election fraud, about COVID, uh, about uh, any group that they don't like, but also uh, economic freedom to be able to, to maximize their own interests. We found that, say, during COVID, with a good example of it, is um, Christian nationalists were, were just uh, not not only powerfully uh, for you know or against excuse me like vaccines or masks or any kind of lockdowns, but it was it was about uh, maximizing their own prosperity, the, the economy, protect the economy, protect our own freedom, uh, protect our own liberty to be able to go to church uh, or to go to do these things unmasked. Which which was actually kind of you know funny story. We we just came out with a study. Not funny, I guess. This is actually tragic. I, I so I should uh, amend that. But um, we found that you know we 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 had this longitudinal data, uh, and we found that uh, Americans who who deliberately violated um, uh, the uh, cro- protocols and went to church when they weren't supposed to, when everybody had shelter in place order. Uh, they were uh, several times more likely to actually, by the next survey, come down with COVID or to be infected with COVID. Uh, but we found that the people who, who were actually most likely to be infected were the people who didn't normally attend church. In other words, they were attending church as some kind of a protest, as some kind of a screw you to like these lockdown restrictions, and they ended up uh, screwing around and finding out, right? Like they, they ended up getting get, getting themselves sick as a, as a way to, to own the libs. Uh, we just published that study a few a few weeks back, but it's this kind of idea of like of of libertarian means I can do whatever I want without consequence, um, and that is my right as kind of like white Christian citizen. There definitely is also a race dimension of this too that you really have to underline, which is I'll give an example. So you remember Strom Thurmond, the long-serving white supremacist senator from South Carolina? So as a, as, a, as a young man, he was actually a Democrat, and he was progressive as long as the progressivism was just for white people. And, you know, after Brown v. Ford and, you know, the civil rights movement, he 
changed his tune and he suddenly became a conservative and he became a libertarian. Now, why did he become a libertarian? Well, you know, part of what libertarianism is about is says, well, you know, keep the government out of my life, uh, which is, uh, you know, in this case, it means, well, keep the government from giving any money to people whom I don't like. Though, of course, uh, these folks are not opposed to uh, government giving money to to folks like them. You know, uh, you remember during the might remember during the Tea Party movement, there was like, you know, keep the government out of my Medicare, right? As if it was like something that something that 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 belonged to me. One thing I worry about, and this is part of this anti-democratic trend that we're starting to see, is you're starting to hear on the far right more and more authoritarian rhetoric. So they're not saying, you know, oh, libertarianism, that was definitely a mistake. You know, what we really need is we need a strong government that's going to take on the liberals and take on the elites and impose uh, impose our views on ev- on everybody else. So, you know, basically the kind of political philosophy is following the money and privilege is what's happening. That's really helpful to understand. My dilemma, Dr. Gorski, something I struggle with, we have essentially a two-party system certainly at the national level, right? You can vote for a Republican or a Democrat. And even as we see more and more Republican candidates sort of openly uh, championing this authoritarianism, other um, aspects of white Christian nationalism, like making it more difficult or at least not easier to vote, uh, these blatant displays, right? If I'm conservative, if I'm so-called pro-life, however you define that, if I stand for these certain principles associated with the Republican Party, I, in some sense, feel constrained no matter who the candidate is because that's the Republican candidate. Is is that a legitimate sort of uh, conundrum, and is there any way to address that? Boy, I think about this a lot. I'm sure Sam will have thoughts, too. One thing I would say is that the Republican Party is not a conservative party, not anymore. It's a radical party. It's not a party that's about preserving American institutions and traditions and values. It's a party that's about burning it all down. And so I think uh, right now what is really important is is for folks who do support uh, a pluralistic society, who do support liberal democracy, to band together in uh, in defense of it, and and that probably is going to mean that um, you know some of the things, some of the issues that we really care very deeply about, you know, maybe that's uh, that's pro life issue. We maybe just have to set those arguments aside uh, for a time because if, you know if we don't, what's going to happen is we're going to have um, uh, uh, an authoritarian government and. I can tell you, you know, historically how that turns out, um, that also authoritarianism and corruption go hand in hand and corruption and poverty go hand in hand. Um, this is uh, this is not going to turn out well for any of us, uh, including the folks who think they're defending their own their own best interests here. So uh, you know, what we need is really is a kind of a coalition that, that, that runs from, you know, I put it this way sometimes from AOC to Liz Cheney. And those are two very powerful, very charismatic ladies who I doubt they agree about very much in terms of social policy, but they both agree about defending American democracy and the American Constitution. And, you know, hopefully if we succeed in that, we can go back to having some of the arguments that we've had about the size of government or, you know, uh, pro-life versus, uh, you know, pro-choice. But, you know, for now, I think the threat is so grave that we really do uh, need to set aside some of those those disagreements for a while. That's powerful. Dr. Perry, do you have anything to add to this sort of binary constraint that we see ourselves in? Yeah, I think that, I mean, a, a part of the part of the problem is, is I mean, we, we talk a lot about polarization. Um, mostly what, what we mean by that isn't, isn't extremes per se. I mean, the Republicans, asymmetrical polarization is, has happened in, in the sense that Republicans have moved toward extremes faster than Democrats have by a lot. Democrats are 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 a, are a coalition party. They're far more likely to be made up of moderates and all kinds of diverse uh, groups. I think maybe fifty five percent of the Democratic Party is white. The rest are non-white. There's a large percentage of seculars, large percentage of 
say, African-American Protestants and, and uh, Hispanic Catholics and white liberal Protestants. And um, I think uh, what, what is driving a lot of, I think, Republican unity is not just not is not at all the fact that like everybody has a coherent political theology or understanding of what's going on. I think most Americans aren't just don't live in that space, uh, but they but they understand negative polarization. They understand kind of like animosity or hostility toward the other group. Uh, that is that is actually what most I think Republican politicians are campaigning on. So, for example, Oklahoma, where you almost don't need to campaign. I mean, it's so red, but like um, every ad that I see. Uh, for like Governor Stitt, who is running for re-election, and uh, and every ad that I see isn't about his candidate; it is about associating his candidate with Biden. Every 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 ad is about like you vote for this candidate; it's just like voting for Biden. Well, what's the point of that? Well, it's because most most Oklahomans don't know anything about what's going on in Oklahoma, but they do know where they stand on Biden. <laughs> and and if most of them don't like Biden, they're going to vote for the other guy. And and so uh, I think what we are uh, dealing with is 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 a uh, a profound ignorance in, in the voting populace uh, about like what are the issues on offer, but also heightened polarization that comes from the top down, uh, where you have a Marjorie Taylor Greene or a Bobert or a or a Mastriano or a Trump uh, or a DeSantis or a Josh Hawley coming in and comparing their enemies to Satan, right? Like and and talking about the Luciferian left. Well, that just makes any kind of like any kind of democratic choice impossible, right? Because how could you even make a choice there in the situation? So I, I think, you know, uh, politicians, especially, I don't know how we, how we do this, but uh, except at the ballot box, but politicians need to be held to account to say, you know, hey, we, we, we want to be uh, America, not this kind of uh, hyper-polarized, hate-filled, uh, dystopian war zone. I was recently on a panel conversation with a political scientist who said, you know, she often gets asked by people, well, how do I get someone who's Republican to vote for a Democratic candidate who's going to preserve democracy? And she was just like, you can't. <laughs> like, they won't do that. Um, but what you can ask is that they put forth better candidates that will at least protect, you know, the basic processes, the Democratic processes. So that was a that was a reality check. <laughs> um Let's get practical here as, as, uh, as, as we take all of this information, try to synthesize it. We, you know, the folks who studied this and, and talk about this, and especially looking back to January 6th, understand the stakes in upcoming elections in our political landscape in general. Literally, democracy itself, being able to vote, being confident that the results of particular elections is what people will hold to without saying it was a lie or demanding, you know, an overturn. All of that is at stake right now. And so for the people listening on a, on a very, you know, sort of actionable level, what are some things that we can do to, you know, do something little and pedestrian like prevent the fall of democracy? <laughs> Dr. Gorski, do you have any thoughts? Well, so I, I guess I have two thoughts. I mean, one is uh, just for any American who cares about democracy and, and others uh, is for, for people of faith. One thing is to kind of get more engaged at the local and, and, and state level. Um, you know, maybe the other side is in control of the White House or Washington, D.C., or maybe your state capital, but maybe they're not in control of your local, your, your local school board or your, you know, your local city council or something like that, right? And so folks have to have to get engaged. And of course, they also have to get organized. Um, you know, that's, you know, people sometimes say, well, you know, but like these far right white Christian nationalists, okay, maybe they're 20% of the population, but they're not 50% of the population. It's like, well, you're right about that. But boy, they're a lot better organized than we are. And so we got to get organized as well, you know, which is difficult because we're a more diverse coalition. But I, th I think there really is a very important role for people of, of faith to, um, to to play here too, just because you know th there there are plenty of folks, uh, you know, white folks and white churches who I don't know they feel uneasy with how things are going, and they you know they somehow feel this is. This just isn't right, you know, that this kind of the violent talk, the hateful rhetoric. Um, 
And, you know, what some of the folks need is they just need an off-ramp. They just need somebody to kind of, you know, point the way back, you know, maybe kind of get into the passenger seat with them and help them steer in the in, in the right direction. And, you know, that's not work that can be done, you know, with a survey or a historical study. You know, that has to be, you know, we all live in stories. We live through stories. You got to, you got to, you know, Part of the white Christian national power of white Christian nationalism is that it does it is a powerful story for a lot of people that gives them a sense of purpose and meaning and their place and things. And you can't counter that with uh, just a bunch of facts and statistics as much as Sam and I wish you could. You just can't. You have to counter that with a different narrative, and that's got to be, you know, a narrative that's inclusive, that's pluralistic, that's, that's grounded in in love and a love of justice. And, you know, certainly, the, you know, the Christian, Christian, Christian stories, you know, the, the Christian Bible provides plenty of sources, plenty of such stories. And so part of it is just repeating those stories and as an alternative to this, this false story, this heretical story, uh, this heretical version of Christianity. That's very helpful. Dr. Perry, would you add anything? Yeah, I think it's um, I would only add, I think it's going to take courage on the part of uh, pastors and faith leaders uh, to be able to speak out against this. Uh, in social psychology, we have this concept that we call pluralistic ignorance. And, and is the it is the phenomenon where um, my I, I incorrectly believe that the majority of, of people in my group believe something that I don't I don't believe that I don't I don't share that I don't want to do. But I, I, I believe that everybody else thinks it. And so I kind of go along with it at, at the time. Oftentimes in experiments is usually like college students who don't want to engage in kind of hookup sex all over the place or, or illegal drugs, but they believe everybody's doing it. So they kind of go along with it and they protest. And, and, and I, I think something similar probably goes on within these congregations that they, that you have people who really do look around and say, I don't want, I don't want this. I don't want Christian national. This isn't what I'm about. I don't want like where I'm, I'm uncomfortable with the way this is going, but it takes some people that you, it takes a it takes a critical capacity of people to say I'm not I'm not down for this guys I'm not I'm not I'm not in for this at all and the power of a pastor uh, the power of a leader to be able to speak out against it they're they're going to get hammered I mean I, just as you see like anybody on the right who who steps up and speaks out and says yeah Christian nationalism is not the way to go they're going to get uh, uh, ganged up on by a lot of the people who says oh you're woke uh, you're you know you're you're a tool of the left. Uh, you know, you punch right and you coddle left and you do all these, you, you do all these things, but it, it takes an, a critical capacity of people to say, guys, this is, this is, this is uh, racist. This is uh, backwards. This is anti-democratic. It's un-American and it's unchristian. Um, but that, that is a real risk for them. I mean, I, like we've, we've, and I'm, I'm go to church here in Norman and, and uh, I'm friends with a lot of pastors here locally in Norman and, and the last two years have witnessed a whole lot of sorting on the basis of things like Trump and abortion and race. Uh, and if you, if you say anything as a pastor, uh, it signals and people leave. Uh, if you, if you said George Floyd, if you said anything about George Floyd, you were, you were woke uh, and people left. And if you, if you didn't come out hard for Trump, uh, you were, you were a tool of the left and you, and people left, or if you did, you know, if you didn't come out hard enough for George Floyd, I mean, people said, no, I'm out of here. So people, Religious leaders, faithfully Christian leaders, have to know that like this is going to take courage to say like I'm I'm we're not down with this. Here's what it means to be a Christian. Here's what it means to be a patriot, and it isn't Christian nationalism. <laughs> and, uh, but that is uh, we have to encourage them and champion those efforts. Gentlemen, I have learned so much. I was taking notes. Um, this is going to be extremely helpful for people, and I can imagine folks are going to want more. Uh, what I keep saying: these are the beginnings of conversations, not the end all be all. So. What are some ways that people can keep up with you and your work, Dr. Gorski? Well, I guess you you know you can follow us, uh, follow me and, and Sam on on Twitter, Gorski Philip, uh, Prof. Sam Perry. That would be the main way to main way to keep up. And uh, you know, I, I don't write as as quickly as Sam does, but you know, follow follow Sam. You know, if you can, it's a hard man to keep up with. I'm saying absolutely. All these studies you referenced that they have come out since the book came out. I'm like, okay, um, he must need two or three hours of sleep a night. <laughs> Dr. Perry, anything else or anything you're working on that you want us to know about? No, I think this is, I mean, this is where our focus is right now. We want to make sure that we're available. So I think, yeah, following us on Twitter, but also, you know, uh, I think uh, Phil and I both want to 
be as available as we can to speak to a broad audience uh, of people who are interested in this topic. And so um, we want to make ourselves uh, open to that. Well, I appreciate you making yourselves available. And I'm going to plug this book one more again, The Flag and the Cross, White Christian Nationalism and the Threat to American Democracy. You can pick this up on my bookshop page and wherever books are sold. Dr. Perry, Dr. Gorski, thank you for joining us on White Nation Under God. Thank you. Thank you, Jamar. America.